Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss the culture and art of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Ginangeli. Andiamo avanti. Renaissance people, welcome back to the continuation of our interview series. Before I introduce our guest today, I just want to say that this is the first time we're going to do an interview in two parts. So for the beginning, we're going to discuss who these followers of Raphael are, what eco-critical art history is, and what our guest, Esme Garlake, what her approach is to studying the Renaissance via eco-criticism or eco-critical art history. Okay, so we're going to start with Giulio Romano, the approach overall, and ultimately his frescoes in Palazzo Te in Mantua. And in the second part, we're going to get more into Giovanni da Udine and the Villa Farnesina in Rome. Renaissance people, I am so excited to welcome Esme Garlic on the show today, and we are going to be discussing the artworks of Giovanni da Udine and Giulio Romano. These are uh, followers of Raphael, and we're specifically going to be looking at Esme's um, critical approach to art history, that is eco-criticism, and how she applies that to the Renaissance. So Esme Garlic, she's an art historian and climate activist. She's earned her uh, bachelor's in arts in Spanish and Italian at the University of Cambridge. Um, in a, uh, I said I saw MA and started to say Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> I didn't know that. No. And a master's degree in the history of art, specializing in the Italian Renaissance at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. Esme has recently started a PhD in the history of art department at University College London, focusing on early 16th century Italian art through an eco-critical lens. Esme is also involved in grassroots groups campaigning for climate justice, including Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, and Fossil Free London. Esme, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So let's kick things off in simple terms. Uh, we're discussing two artists of the High Renaissance, and we're going to dive into eco-critical art history as an approach to analyzing art and how that can be applied specifically in the context of Renaissance art. Uh, Esme, can you provide us with a brief overview of Giovanni da Udine and uh, Giulio Romano and the works that we're going to be discussing today, please? Yeah, of course. So. Um... These two artists both worked in Raphael's workshop in the 1510s, um, but they had quite different roles. So Giulio Romano was slightly younger and he was born in Rome um, and he started his artistic career through Raphael's workshop. He was an apprentice there and he actually became um, one of the two heirs to Raphael's workshop when he died in 1520. And he, so he's he's kind of follows Raphael much more closely in some senses. Giovanni da Udine was uh, from Veneto in northern Italy. Uh, he, when he came to Rome in the 1510s, he was a more established artist already. So he joined Raphael's workshop as the specialist in painting nature and birds and animals. Um, so they both worked on the same commissions, which we're going to talk about. So some frescoes um, in the Vatican and in a, in particular, the Villa Farnesina um, in Rome. And yeah, they both 
Um, so Giovanni da Udine was using, he was kind of applied to doing the borders and the vegetation and the animals. Giulio mm. Romano much more was helping Raphael with the figures. Do you want to take us through some of, some of these works? Yeah, so to, I mean, I think if it's, I, I feel as we, before we start going into them, just I probably need to say kind of my own approach about, about the ecosystem, because I um, focused during my master's uh, on these two artists, but I was looking at at them through what I would now say is an eco-critical perspective. And and as a general kind of definition, as we, it will become clearer as we go, but I'm I'm looking at these two artists thinking about what their artworks can tell us about human relationships with the natural world and with animals and plants. Um, and as you'll see, it, it opens up quite a few questions which we may not have asked um, if we weren't thinking about this part of things. So... Yeah, so I mean, I think it's important to think about the animals that were actually existing in Rome at this time. They weren't just dogs and cats and birds, but they were also um, animals like this uh, Hanno the elephant. Um, I don't know if you know Hanno the elephant, Lawrence. Uh, You know, I think I've come across them when I was doing a little bit of work on Lorenzo de' Medici's giraffe, but Mm -hmm. I don't think I know Hanno's story. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting because there are these kind of individual animals that stand out in the Renaissance in this particular period. And they often, we know about them through artworks. Um, And part of that is because the patrons or, you know, the owners of these animals wanted them to be memorialized in art to show off partly the fact that they had access to these animals, um, which represent, I mean, it's kind of like a, a fancy car today it's like a big status symbol Um, so so Hanno the elephant came over I think he was a a diplomatic gift from I think it was the king of Portugal I may be wrong but he came over um gifted to Leo the 10th um the Pope Leo the 10th and he um only lived for two more years so he came to Rome in 1516 and was in a procession through the streets and he only lived um a couple more years because I think he was he was accidentally they fed him gold or they fed him something that poisoned him um but he was apparently beloved by um by Leo X and this image of was was done by Raphael and it's it's really interesting um to have a look at how we might think about an image of an animal from early 16th century Italy because you can see that it's first of all really realistic I mean look that there are the hairs on the elephant's head um the wrinkles he has really captured all the wrinkles and the the textures of the elephant's skin but the elephant also um, has a bell around its neck. It has a handler on top and um, one to the side on the ground. So this really is a, a domesticated animal. Yeah. So I, I imagine not me, maybe you can actually um, identify what type of elephant this is based on the rendering. Yes, absolutely. This, yeah. So this would be an Indian elephant, this oh, one, because yeah. it has tiny ears. Um, right. So yeah, and that is it is and and yeah. I mean, it's interesting because this was a period when 
um, you know, Raphael was one of the first artists who was using human life models to to um, draw his figures um, and uh, life drawing as we would today think of it. And so animals um, were also involved in this in the sense Raphael didn't do it so much. He mainly um, painted and depicted human figures. But the reason I was interested in showing this image first is to see how artists at this time were increasingly valuing naturalism in their art. So being really realistic about animals. Often we think of that as being a kind of progressive element. Um, so as we'll see, it's kind of, it's not just, uh, you know, we, we as our historians can see, we can celebrate that as an element of um, the start of kind of empirical um, observation and scientific knowledge, which it is certainly, um, but also important to recognise that these artists have access to these animals through um, often very troubling um, kind of power dynamics so again like thinking about these animals as as real beings who actually experienced um, quite a lot of hardship. So what I have here next is, is that re really important is I think your approach because eco-critical art history in the renaissance is pretty novel right there's not a large body of work on this and there's not a large number of experts in this field so, A, that it's extremely important that you're doing this work, but also how are you doing this work? Can you define eco-critical art history and how that's being linked to the Renaissance? For sure. I think it's important to see eco-critical art history as or one thing that has helped me explain it to people has been to think about it in parallel to feminist art history. So mm -hmm. if we that feminism, as we know it, that's a 20th century phenomenon. It's it's a modern phenomenon. Um, but we as art historians now feel quite comfortable applying it to pretty much any art historical period. Um, because it's about asking questions about gender, about sexuality, about the historical status of women and power dynamics, crucially, in societies. Um, and so the way I try and think about eco-critical art history is in a similar way, we are currently in a time when questions of environmental um, catastrophe and environmental instability are right at the forefront of our modern experiences. And that requires that we think back on history it, with a new kind of lens that thinks about human histories of interactions with and exploitation of the natural world and animals. So the key point, I, I guess, to make at, at this stage is that it's very open. Uh, it's far more about asking questions um, at right. this stage, um, which is very exciting. Um, but also it's about remembering that these it doesn't have that the artwork that we're looking at does not have to explicitly engage with per se uh the environment or climate change a lot of eco-critical art historians are doing amazing work at thinking about environment environments um you know in in this period or earlier or later 
Um, I'm personally more interested in thinking more about how art plays into perceptions at the time in early 16th century Italy of animals, of of the world around, of, you know, even not just natural world, but the the urban environments, things right. like that. So, I mean, it only has a little bit to do, from what I'm understanding, with um, the actual types of naturalism in depiction. Like you said, Raphael is depicting from live models. It's not that type of naturalism, but actually the interaction between the imagery of the natural world and the artist. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people. If you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. Yes. And the art, the artist and how it's received. So I think I have uh, my my MA focusing on Giulio Romano and Giovanni da Udine was thinking quite a lot about it was really centering the artist. And I think that while that that is useful, um, I, I now I'm taking more of a, an approach of let's use these artworks to, to think about receptions, like to think about mm-hmm. how those artworks were functioning for people to kind of build people's um views of the natural world at the time and to view and and to build views of human dominance over the natural world as well so i mean the image that's on that we have now um is giulio romano's um horses room at sala dei cavalli um in palazzo te in mantua which again i would urge anyone to go and see if they are in italy um it's an amazing um Palazzo um, in Mantua and Giulio Romano did this a few years he started work on it around 1520, uh, 1524 when he arrived in Mantua from Raphael's workshop and this room just to, it, it's filled with frescoes but the the naturalistic depictions of his patron's horses are fascinating and they're fascinating for art historians thinking about so many things but for, from an eco-critical perspective they they're a really great example of an artist who is capturing these animals so naturalistically so realistically and one of the horses is actually looking down with an open eye uh, mm-hmm. as if we've kind of startled it I, I I would say this is an example of you know these these are thoroughbred horses they are again status symbols mm-hmm. we as art historians i i think from a perspective of today where you know we still have horse racing we still use and abuse animals you know indus- on an industrial scale mm-hmm. i think it helps us to look at these animals and think right here's an artist projecting 
um, a view of these animals as objects, a view of mm. these animals as therefore our um, consumption, both visually and literally. You know, I, this is such an interesting fresco um, in that, do, do you happen to know off the top of your head, this is Palazzo Te Mantua, is that um, the... the... Yeah, yeah, whose who's palace it was. Oh, palace. yeah, it's Federico Gonzaga's. Gonzaga. Gon yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it's a Gonzaga. It says it was a suburban uh, palace, yeah. Right, Gonzaga, of course. Um, yeah. You know, for for um, listeners, what we essentially are looking at on, on our screen here are two highly naturalistic horses standing above uh, eye level, like well above the fireplace, but in the center of the composition is a sculptural human form looks like a, some kind of philosopher figure or um something of the like but it, it's really not it, it's not a stylized version of these horses they are naturalistically rendered as close as possible and um maybe has something to do with like power and patronage of Absolutely. the family itself right Go ahead. yeah these these um particular breeds as well there has been um quite a few studies now about the breeding of horses in the Gonzaga court um, and this was a passion of Federica Gonzaga's it's very much you know art historians can see straight away that this is a state this is about status and power I think what's interesting to note as well was the kind of the showing off that Giulio Romano is doing he he is showing these horses their life size they are they they are individual horses. So the the Duke Federico Gonzaga knew each horse. He it's it's a kind of pet portrait in a way. It's the the Renaissance pet portrait. Um, but also it's interesting to note the kind of classical references that this this naturalism has. So thinking about um, I always pronounce his name wrong, but Pl Pliny or Pliny, Pliny the I, Elder. I say Pliny, but Pliny. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> it's when you you spend all your time reading the word and you don't say right. that. Um, but Pliny the Elder, the Roman author, in his Natural History book, which had a big influence on artists at this time, um, he writes about a Greek painter who uh, painted grapes so realistically that birds flew up to the painting oh. to, try to pluck them and so Giulio Romano here just like um Giovanni da Udine and Raphael and many others at this time they are really also declaring their intellectual knowledge and they're aligning themselves with these ancient painters through naturalism that, that would have to have to be a Pelle's was it the paint the do you know it was uh do you know I think he had another thing like that but this was uh like Zeus. yeah okay yeah. again another greek like <laughs> um so how many horses actually make up this room do you is, i imagine i think it's, it's eight mm -hmm. um yeah and there's a book that's just come out recently and this is a historian's book uh i cannot remember her name it's cooley her surname is Cooley, mm -hmm. an American scholar, um, about race and breeding um, uh -huh. of animals in the in Italian the Italian Renaissance, and then she compares it with um, colonial settlements in in Southern America. So, kind of the idea and and the history of race and breeding and uh, razza, the the word for race, um, which was used in in animal breeding first. So, mm -hmm. there's 
again, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of social history in in eco-critical art history. Sure. Yeah. Well, that that's you know I was going to mention that, but I didn't I didn't want to uh, belabor the point too much. But I I always tell my listeners to read Michael Baxendall. Um, mm. And this is this is social history, but it's also understanding what a viewer in the 16th century would see when they looked at these horses. And I'm imagining they would see this sort of idea of pedigree, right? And absolutely. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I cannot see in a horse, I could not tell <laughs> one horse from another right. in a painting, but but viewers in the Palazzo Te in the 16th century would um, immediately recognize the implications of this specific type of representation for the horses. Yes. Absolutely. So I think also it's interesting to to compare um, the kind of hyper realism of these horses um, with a room next to it, which is these huge, it's my favorite room in the Palazzo Te. It's a room filled with classical figures. Mm -hmm. Um, Lawrence, you're probably better at describing um, for listeners screen if you want to go. Yeah, so so dear listeners, we're looking at what is called the 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 matrimonio di amore e psiche, or the the marriage of of uh, amore and psyche, um, in the Palazzo Te Mantua by Giulio Romano. So be sure to pull that up, and it's it's a fresco. It it has these sort of architectural like embellishments in the arches. Kind of looks actually. It makes me think of uh, what Veronese is going to do when he puts his his biblical scenes to these series of three arches we have it looks like a classical scene it's kind of uh bacchic i suppose with the yeah table. bacchus is is definitely in there he's actually leaning on the table there he is mm-hmm. and right below him what is going on here we have so, <laughs> yeah so this is a crazy room this yeah. has when you go in and because this is actually above eye level so you look up and it is it is a I would say it's like a an early 16th century kind of party going on it's mm. it's really raucous there's a lot of drinking and um, yeah. half half human half animal people mm-hmm. um the reason I kind of wanted to just we don't we don't need to stay on this for a long time but but looking at this image uh there are there are a lot of animals in it. So we have an elephant in the background, a camel, a donkey. Uh, we also have two tigers on the floor and mm. they have these really kind of swollen teats. But the reason it's really interesting is, is I, I'm interested in how animals have this language of, you know, they can be hyper-realistic. They can also be very uh they they can be symbolic which i think art historians can kind of get a bit a bit more but they can also be very funny in a kind of quite bawdy julia romano is really having a joke here in quite uh, across this whole room really about it's full of sex and full of drunkenness okay. and and so these tigers i i just think are, are a really good example of they're they're natural they're naturalistic but they're also kind of um bawdy and and a bit kind of sexualized strangely um actually the first time i think that i've ever seen tigers in renaissance painting off the top mm -hmm. of my head they're they're not a common motif at all lions yes tigers not so much and also again you've got this mix of 
okay, it's doing something um, kind of, it's it's classical, it's indicating something classical, it's indicating something funny, because Federico Gonzaga apparently is quite a partier as well. So he liked, and he liked his women and things like that. So this is kind of reference, gonna, it's going to amuse him. But also you have, well, these are tigers. This is an artist who has access to tigers, or at least kind of is showing that, that this is a place that, that has access to exotic animals. Um, so yeah, it's all, it's, it's always kind of, I, I would say looking at something like this, not just saying, oh, this is symbolizing, you know, Bacchus or symbolizing a party, but no, let's actually think about how is the artist making this? How is the artist accessing? Um, so they, they don't always access it from life as well. So sometimes, so you can see the elephant here, um, at the start, it kind of uh, images are recycled of animals. Uh, the okay. famous one is Dura's rhinoceros, which famously mm-hmm. Dura did not actually see. He he went off uh, a, a written description, which, so, which so, I think I think you can tell when you look at that. Um, you can if you actually compare it to a, a real rhino. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen uh, this? Has to be my favorite imagined animal. It's it's Baroque. I don't know. I don't know what your background in Baroque art is, but Bernini's um, Four Rivers Fountain in Piazza Navona in Rome. No, no. for it, either for the Nile or for the the Amazon, he does a crocodile, but oh. it is not a crocodile. <laughs> like it is, but he's. Um, it, I'll, I'll post that probably too on the Instagram with with the. Uh, Dura's rhinoceros, but I'll send that to you. Yeah, it's fascinating because we we have this idea that, you know, by the 16th century, you've got artists like Dura and Raphael. Oh, well, uh, and, you know, Leonardo even before uh, being so they they observe the natural world so closely mm-hmm. that actually it's all it's never as simple as that. It really uh, imagination always comes into it. it. And it seems like there's a a type of like hierarchy being presented here, um, maybe based on actual geographic knowledge of animals. It's like a, a simultaneous recognition of like local and indigenous court power by having non-local and indigenous animal species. Yeah. So you have camel um, and elephant and tiger, but you also have these goats. And do you see this? Is that a duck on the plates there? Uh, yeah, so that is that is um it's actually a vessel for you know I think it's a drinking uh, vessel. So it's so not actually a duck. A porcelain. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And that's another fascinating thing about this is you know the the way that animals they're really blurred between being real animals and and objects or vessels or you know they're they're being used for um yeah, so so that's no, that's well spotted. The duck is is an amusing thing. And actually, while we're on that, Giulio Romano, uh, he was he was he really freed. He was free basically. To, he was the court artist in Mantua, and he let his imagination run wild. So he designed the architecture for the palazzo. He did the frescoes, but he also was designing tableware for and silverware for Federico Gonzaga and for his. Uh, banquets so and they had an amazing exhibition actually last year where or this year earlier this year where they um the curators actually remade some of the some of the vessels some of the designs wow um, using 3d printing i think it's very cool but 
he uses uh here's here's an example so most of the tableware is now lost but we have his designs for it and he uses animal imagery constantly in it as a as an imaginative um as an imaginative tool so we're looking at uh, at prongs here that are made out of well they're imagined as a duck's beak yeah Um, this is very interesting for for our listeners, I mean, it looks, it's a prongs. That's what we would call it for mm. like serving food or something. It does not really look practical though. Are, do you know if they actually made one of these or is this just an example of his drawings that you're showing? We don't know if he actually made one of these. I'm not sure if they did in the exhibition, but he was famously, he was famously over the top with with his designs so actually one of the first designs that he made he he employed an artisan in rome to to create the turn the design into life and the rome the the person in rome said that's the last time i'm doing this for you because you you paid me too little and it took way too long and it was way too complicated and not worth it um but he you know i mean i think we're fairly familiar with decorations even from medieval times and classical times using animals as as decorations particularly in the margins um and and kind of blurring leaves with animal bodies and things like that here Giulio Romano really he's combining a kind of naturalism with an imagination and that's fascinating but it also I I would argue uh it it kind of again reinforces a view or it's reflecting a view of animals as as being there as objects yeah, and, and I suppose that's a kind of quite cynical view in a way, but again, important in the context of, the, you know, this is a period where this is just at the beginning of colonial expansion abroad and, and the colonies are really growing. And so thinking about kind of the, the, the world, the worldview is shifting at this period, in this period. Right. And, and you know, I think about trying to relate to um, early modern people, sometimes you know, I I personally uh, contest the idea that we're all the same everywhere in the world and we've always been the same. That is very far from the truth for me. In the very least, there is often this sort of bond between human and animals that I think appears and does manifest either symbolically or otherwise in Renaissance art. But then that's also contrasted with this animal which the drawing doesn't look like it's based on the design of an animal. It looks like it's based off of the physical anatomical parts of this bird, right? There's like a real is not the snakes. The snakes look like they'd be decorative, but Mm -hmm. the bird head looks like drawn from life or Mm -hmm. referencing some, some sort of drawing that drew from life. So the actual like reuse of animal parts or the, the um, sort of a status signifier of animals versus companionship. um, I think, is an interesting distinction. Yeah, and it's also interesting to think about when we're thinking about access to animals um, for the artists, but also for people who are uh, seeing these artworks at the time, um, thinking about how actually people were probably living in much closer proximity to animals than we are today, at least if we live in cities. Um, You know, it's not necessarily that um, Giulio Romano would have been spending lots of time focusing on drawing ducks he actually wasn't particularly interested in drawing he was much more he was the kind of really letting his imagination go and we'll see Giovanni da Udine spent he clearly spent time uh, observing animals but nonetheless you know ducks geese chickens would have been around 
Mm. Um, and I think it's important to also emphasize, yeah, this is about accessing animals and treating them like objects. Yes. But also, you know, the world was extremely different pre and this is a pre-industrial world where farming is generally not done on a massive scale, you know, so quite good to recognize again. Yeah. Like the differences in that. Renaissance people, that was the conclusion of the first half of my conversation with Esme Garlake, which was exceptional. Coming next is going to be our discussion of Giovanni da Udine and the Villa Farnesina, as well as the recent climate protests that have been taking place inside of museums. Stay tuned, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and check out our Patreon. Until next time, my dear listeners, arrivederci.